Hi, I'm Jessie Draper. I am first and foremost a mom, a boy mom to be exact, a boy mom who invests in female-founded companies. Yep, the joke's on me. I'm the founder of Halogen Ventures, a former entrepreneur and creator of an Emmy-nominated television series on technology. My mission is to support women and help raise awareness about the biggest issues facing society, women, and families today, starting with solving childcare. From celebrity guests to founders and politicians, everyone came from a family somewhere. And I want to hear from you, the families of America, on how we can make change because I can't do this alone. Let's get started. We have monumental work to do. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Celeste Headley is a journalist, radio host, and author of best-selling book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. She's been working at NPR for over 20 years, and her TED Talk, 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, has been viewed over 26 million times. She's busy, busy teaching us how to communicate. She's also a trained operatic soprano, and she taught us about raising her son and how she gets him to pick up and answer the phone every time. So listen to this episode to find out how. Celeste, I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so, so much for joining us. I'm nervous to communicate with such a great communicator. That's how I'm feeling right now because you're an award-winning journalist, you're a best-selling author, and this is my favorite part of your bio. You're a communication and human nature expert. I mean, that's fantastic. And I love deep talks. That person that asks those questions that people are kind of afraid to ask. And it sounds like you are very similar. So this is going to be really fun today. So we usually start with kind of our mom win of the week. So what is your mom win of the week? And for me, we're just coming off of Thanksgiving. And we were driving from San Francisco back to LA. I had seen my family. And I have a seven-year-old, four-year-old, and a one-year-old. And the one-year-old was in the car seat and my husband and I are driving and he kept being like why is the door open there's a door open and we kept having to pull over on the freeway and check all the doors and then we realized after about the third time that my one-year-old had figured out how to open the door on the freeway and it was terrifying because he had gotten he could get half out of his car seat and then open the door and so we figured out we pulled over again figured out how to do the child lock so my mom win is that my one-year-old survived that drive (laughs) i'm telling you mommyhood a lot of parenthood is just trying to keep your kid from killing themselves from falling out of the car constantly trying to maim or injure or or murder themselves constantly. So so true. So what was yours? (laughs) So mine, my son is 24 and just graduated college and moved home for the time being. And so my mom win is that we had to get him a new desk to fit into the new space. And he assembled it by himself. Oh, amazing. (laughs) You didn't have to do any work. Absolutely nothing. That's So uh, yeah, he took a a fairly complicated piece of furniture you know, and put it together. That's huge. Yeah, I know. I feel like that's, that's a pretty big step. So I'm definitely in. Yeah, that's fantastic. What a great mom win. I'm in a definite, I'm definitely in a different era than you are. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you're in it. They couldn't do that. (laughs) They can do some complex Legos on occasion. And that's been better for me because I mean, those things will take all day when you get some of the big ones. They really yeah, the ones that have like 2,000 pieces. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, they're crazy. And then it's like, what do you do with them? 
like what like we build them and then I need like a display case or something because I know because you don't want to mess them up but you yeah. got to let the kids like that was the whole point of the Lego movie right like yeah yeah you can build it the way it's supposed to but then you got to let the kids you know mess yes. with it and yes oh you're right I know that movie so well they couldn't yeah. they shouldn't glue yeah you weren't supposed them. to touch them yeah. Like, yeah Lego's whole message was play with them play with them don't yeah. glue them together yeah. yeah, the I'm glad we could, we can relate over the Lego movie. I've clearly <laughs> seen that a few times. Okay, and you know we kind of do some parent news of the day, and I just like to address kind of what's going on in childcare. And you know, according to a recent article that just came out, I think last week in the Cut, sixteen thousand childcare facilities have shut down, and a hundred thousand workers have left since 2019. And I knew a hundred thousand workers had left because people have been reporting on that for a little while. But sixteen thousand childcare facilities. What do you think about that? What are we going to do? How do we educate this next generation? <laughs> you know, for me, this is like we have been known this is coming for a really long time. I mean, how long has it been since we've known that our childcare system was completely broken, dysfunctional, and not actually serving children or parents? A really long time. You know, that's one of the things the pandemic did. It didn't create problems. It really exacerbated existing problems. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that we've lost thousands of childcare centers. They were always, most of them, operating on the edge of disaster. It's very difficult to get good childcare workers because they don't aren't able to pay them very much because most parents can't afford that much for childcare. It's unaffordable. Um, yeah, it, before I mean, how it's it's really close before the childcare becomes more expensive than you're making, and and so they've always been on the cusp of disaster. And of course, during the pandemic, when people kept their kids home, they didn't have many of them didn't have a nest egg. Of course, they didn't have a cushion, and and we certainly don't have a cushion built into our system, We, for whatever reason, we didn't seem to see those as essential businesses that deserved a bailout from the government, right? Think of all the industries that we do bail out, but not childcare. How is childcare not one of them? And yet here we are. So like, you know, right now the, the childcare system is in free fall. It was always, we were always going to get here. The pandemic just sped it up a little bit, but we, this was always coming. It's so true. You know, you knew and I knew and every parent in America knew, and yet we still have such a broken system. And, you know, you're mentioning the government is, you know, not getting involved or giving us any of those kind of bailouts. And what I've realized in terms of what I'm doing in venture capital is the biggest frustration to me is that the government isn't helping. And you know what? They're not going to. They're not focused on it. And so what we're trying to do is really invest in childcare now. We're focused on that. But the funniest thing about it is we said, okay, we're going to invest our next fund. We're going to invest in childcare. And I had all of these venture capitalists who have much larger funds than we do. And they were saying, is it really a big enough market opportunity? Oh my God. And I'm like, well, it's 500 billion. But challenge accepted, I can make it bigger. So now we created a new category called Future of Family, which we did a whole research study around to prove this is childcare, education, anything in and around the family. But I look at it as an opportunity too. And you can actually, you know, I'm trying to convince all of these investors with now real data. And I, you know, it's very clear. It's like, this is a de-risked investment. You'll make a ton of money. 
you know, schools are never going to shut down again. This is the best place you could put your money right now is investing in childcare, in technologies, in facilities. So I am right there with you. It is so frustrating. And it's, yeah, and it's crazy to me, but we still have to, I've realized we just have to root it all in data and be like, this is an opportunity and we need everyone's money going here because you're going to make a bunch of money. That's what you have to prove to everybody. And, you know, the other thing is that we have all this data showing that employers are for the most part wrong about what they think their employees want. Yes. Um, They often, you know, they'll give them a snack bar and a foosball table. And it turns out that's not what employees really value. But I mean, they'll play with it and they'll eat the snacks. But when it comes down to it, things like really good healthcare, really good childcare, flexibility in their schedules, that's what they really want. That's how you retain workers. But it's not only how you retain workers, but when their childcare worries are, are not a, an issue, you're going to get uh, an employee that is, has a lot more well-being and is therefore more productive, more creative, more innovative. Like the return on investment in this area is massive and cascading. Yes. So the fact that people would say, is there a big enough market? That is crazy. Well, I'm to like, me. have you even looked at this market? Because I'm planning on investing in it and making billions. So I'm also hoping that solves a major problem in society in the US. Every other country seems to have it at least lightly figured out here. It's really a disaster. But we're coming up with solutions. So I think that's a great solution, you know, corporate benefits, make sure employers are thinking about that. And we've seen a couple companies around that. And I think we're going to see more and more because you're right. That's what employers want. So tell me a little about you have a 24 year old who sounds like he's doing great. He put a desk together and that's huge. So <laughs> that he's clearly, huge. you know, he's clearly operating great. And what did childcare look like for you when he was growing up? And how did you, you know, you're a working mom. How did that work? I mean, childcare was a disaster for me. I was a single parent. His father was deployed to Bosnia, then Kosovo, and didn't get back to the States until our son was the three and a half. And I was sing- I've been a single mother for most of my adult life and working in my two jobs were in opera and public radio. So not making a lot of money. I mean, clearly you don't go into those fields if money is your focus, but you know, I could, the only way for me to afford childcare was to work 24 seven. I mean, I just took every possible job I could. I was freelancing. I sometimes had eight different jobs up in the air at any one point. And my son would have to go with me sometimes. I mean, I remember on his ninth birthday, the Northwest Airline mechanics went on strike and I was like, pack up your presents, buddy. And he spent the rest of his birthday on the pavement in the front of the airport while I filed story after story about the airline strike. So, you know, childcare for me was a patchwork of desperation at the same time, you know, what trying to find the absolute highest quality childcare I possibly could. And so I was, in order for me to afford childcare, I had to work all these different jobs. But of course, by working all these different jobs, it put me above the line where I could get assistance with childcare. <laughs> so, you know, and I remember take when I took the job, I took a job at WDET in Detroit and the public radio station there. And when I interviewed, I said that I'm a single parent of a, of a not even in preschool kid when he's going to have to come into work with me sometimes. If I have to work late or something, or if it's after childcare, he has to come in with me. And they were like, oh, of course, you know, that the general manager is a woman, her second in command is a woman. We all, you know, we're mothers. We understand. 
But of course, three months in, she said, you know, actually, I didn't think this through and you can't bring your kid in. And it's like, what do you expect me to? <laughs> That's not negotiable. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. Yeah. What did you do? Uh, I mean, I just said, look, if I if I can't bring my kid in, then I won't be in the office. That's the that's the that's the trade off. That's the trade off. Yeah. So, yeah, it was oh, childcare I mean, was a nightmare. It, and I think it always is. I feel very lucky I can afford a nanny. And that's not, you know, the norm. That's less than 1% of society. And I mean, your story is so incredibly inspiring too. And that's what you had to do with a little kid. And you know what? He probably respects you so much and is like, my mom works so hard and that teaches him great work ethic. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And then how did you grow up? And, you know, does that differ at all from how you raised your kid? Or are there any of those things that you were like, I don't want that for my child or I do want that for my child? Yeah, I grew up in a pretty unhappy household. My mother is a narcissist. And I, I mean, like, in the clinical sense. And my father died when I was nine months old. And so she was our only caregiver. So I wanted to basically do absolutely everything different. You know, a, a, a two narcissists, you know, there's the literary sense. And that's how most people use the word narcissist, which means somebody who's egotistical. That's not, I'm talking about the clinical meets over five qualifications in the diagnostic manual they're not really capable of empathy or or loving another person and so it it took me quite a long time to understand what it meant to actually not only love other people but love myself and so when I became a parent that was I, I wanted to make sure that my kid knew he was loved always 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 that no matter what no matter how much he screwed up no matter how angry I was with him I could be angry I th could think he was a jerk when he was a teenager I could think he was smelly but he would know he was loved so that was the main difference that I wanted to make and of course again that we're talking about a change that has a whole cascade of, of differences but yeah I, I needed to change almost everything that's, you brought up love, and I feel like that has come up a couple of times, and it is, it's the most important quality you can give to your kid. It's the most important thing you can give to your kid. I mean, it changes everything. And I look at the foster care system, and that's what they're lacking, you know, is consistent yeah. love. And we think about it, and it's so simple, and it's, but it's not. It's a really important thing that they're just not getting. So it's so true. That's amazing. Well, it sounds like your, your child's very, very loved. So that's great. You have talked about how you grew up, and then how do you think, based on how you raised your son, how do you think we can change this system to solve childcare? Like, what do you think are these solutions? We sort of touched on corporate benefits programs earlier. What are other ways when you think about education? What else can we do for the- I don't think there should ever be a question of availability of childcare. I mean, it needs to be something that the government invests in. It's just the same way that, and maybe that, that, that this is not, my, how you do that is not my area of expertise, but I will say that, you know, even if they came up with a charter school type system in which- yeah you know, it, it, private companies ran them and, and the government invested and held them to standards. That's a great um, idea. I have not. That's a great idea. I have um, no one's brought that up. I, I mean, to me, that's the simplest solution because we could do that right now. Yeah. And there is nothing more important. I mean, if you look at the importance of childhood education, and I don't just mean, you know, we have a tendency to think about analyzing and studying 
poor kids, right? And talking about how important it is to to educate and socialize kids when they're below the poverty line. But A, this it's all that's all still true for people middle class, but also very wealthy kids have extremely negative impacts often of their upbringing. So democratizing the the experience of being in a group of kids who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences it is one way also to solve our civic problem and our polarization problem and and turning this into a system in which your income doesn't dictate not only how the quality of childcare but what other kids are there mm-hmm. in that room is going to just have a a, a a wealth of benefits so how do we solve this we have to take all of childcare out of it, it childcare has to be available for children mm-hmm period. And the government should be involved in making sure that there is a standard of care, the same way that they do with a a healthcare facility, the same way they do with the retirement community or a nursing home. There need to be standards for, for how the, the for how children are taken care of, the kind of food they're given, how much play they're given, and it needs to be subsidized so that, you know, this becomes democratized. I mean, I don't know any other way to solve this. And if we learned nothing over the past two years, it's that um, making childcare something you either can afford or can't is is a is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's yeah, and it should be affordable, as you're saying. I mean, yeah. that's that's the most important thing is how do you make it affordable? And you, you know, you get it a little more subsidized. You have corporations pay for it. I love the idea of charter school being run by corporations. I think that's totally doable. Some some corporations have you know, internal childcare. Like I have a very good friend who she lives in Wayland, Massachusetts and works at TJX and they own TJ Maxx and World Markets and all those companies. And she is able to have childcare from zero through kindergarten there. So she just brings her kids to school there and can pop in, have lunch with them. I mean, it's daycare and it's, it's, that's what everybody should do. And it does, you know, some corporations can't necessarily afford it, but they should, they would be able to, if it was subsidized. Exactly. If a, if a, if a corporation got a tax break or any kind of subsidy to help provide that the same way that you would, would say healthcare or whatever, you know, we give tax, we give all kinds of subsidies to corporations for things like building new buildings, hiring new workers, why on earth would we not subsidize the childcare of their employees? I mean, yeah. th- lots more businesses would be able to afford that if the government were it were providing subsidies. I don't like that you said you weren't an expert in this earlier because you have come up with some of the most creative solutions we've heard on this show. So be confident that you you are an expert, okay. certainly in, in in this. So and you're a mom too. So, you know, you have done, you've been really successful professionally. It sounds like you worked incredibly hard and took every single job in the beginning, but it has paid off and you've been, are you still at, you're still at PBS, correct? I'm not at PBS PBS. anymore. I'm still at NPR. At NPR. Uh, But you were at PBS for 20 years? I was at PBS. I've been at PBS on and off um, for a few years. I've been at NPR for over 20 years in different, in the different capacity. Yeah. So you were at NPR for 20 years. How's that been? And what gets you up in the morning to continue working there? I mean, so, you know, as most people know, public radio is a nonprofit, which means all kinds of things, but mostly it means we don't have to take advertising dollars, which also means as a journalist, we get to take time to tell stories. We don't have to fit 
<laughs> complicated issues on things like childcare into <laughs> 40 seconds, right. which is really important to me. You know, the most important thing for me in my work is, is I, I, I have to be helping to make the world at least a slightly better place. Like I could not continue to work in any field where it wasn't slightly moving the needle. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist and that's one of the, the pillars is that you have to do right work, which it means you don't, you do not excuse destructive work by saying this makes me money, right? So I would never work for say a gun manufacturer. That's my personal philosophy. Yeah. Mine right? too, um, mine too. Yeah. I couldn't do that. I, I, it, I have to work for something that's making the world better. And I do believe that's what I do with public radio. Yeah. And, you know, still a professional musician, which I think also makes the world a slightly more beautiful place. But I do that with all of my work. I mean, working for public radio is, you know, there's a there's a, a little poster that I have that says, you know, low pay, long hour. Journalists, you know, have low pay, long hours. But, you know, on the other hand, everybody hates you. Um there's a certain extent to which journalists, we really don't get res- a whole lot of respect. And we're we're kind of the, we get blamed for a lot. I look um, at you as truth tellers, though. You know, it's important. You need the truth tellers. Oh, absolutely. And only industry that's actually protected by the, specifically protected in the Constitution, I will point out. Yeah. But not every journalist is ethical. Not every journalist is making the world a better place. Um it's just that we all get lumped together in media. So, you know, I mean, I love working for NPR. The people who listen to NPR almost always only listen to NPR. So you get people who have listened and been listening to my voice for years. Oh, and that's a kind of a special relationship. I love it. And you did this incredible TED Talk that I was telling you, my producer, Jesse Guthrie, and I were listening to in the car. And it was a great way to start our day. So everyone needs to listen to this amazing TED Talk. And it's called 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation and has had over 30 million total views to date. No big deal, but it is a big deal. You know, some of the things I took from that, I thought it was interesting talking about being present. And you you sort of quickly mentioned in the TED Talk, you know, if you're not happy in a conversation, get get out of it. And I kind of wanted to dive in there because how? Because I was raised in, you know, I heard Jaden Davis has a new book that just came out called something like Dying of Politeness. I'm sure I'm butchering it. I haven't read it yet. And I feel like my whole life has been that, like I've been too polite my whole life. And so I get in these conversations, I go to millions of conferences and, and sometimes I'm like, okay, I need to be more productive here. Like, how do I get out of this? And I sort of, I'm like, there's two possibilities. Like I can say I have to go to the bathroom or I can say, you know, I have to go talk to that person, but I like to be present. And sometimes I think I'm too present. Like I can't get out of the conversation. So what are your tips there? Okay. So first of all, this is super common. In fact, there's been scientific research showing that one of the the biggest fears that prevents people from starting conversations, especially with strangers, is the fear that they'll be stuck in the conversation forever, that they won't be able to get out of it. So when I like do workshops, you know, for corporations and other things, one of the things I do is exercises of people practicing ending a conversation. It's way less complicated than you think. In other words, if you just say, it's been great to talk to you, I have to go, but you have a good day. If that's all you do and give no explanation whatsoever, we have no evidence at all of anybody thinking that's bad. So 
our ideas that we have to have an excuse to end a conversation is mostly unfounded. You can just walk away without explaining. And in fact, oftentimes our attempt to explain ending a conversation ends up creating awkwardness where there was none before. So I would say to you, just end it. Just, <laughs> just say, bye. you know, it's been, it's been great to talk to you. I have to go and, you know, have a great, I, I gotta go. Have a great day and and hopefully we'll catch up sometime later or whatever it may be. If it's a stranger to say it's been great talking to you, I have to go, you know, you have a good rest of your day. That's it. So there funny. doesn't have to be a bathroom, another conference call. There has to be nothing else. You just have to say, gotta go. I can't believe that everyone's greatest fear is getting into a conversation they can't get out of because I'm and I love talking to people. Like I actually want to meet as many people as I can. So I feel like I'm not in that boat, but I do get in these conversations. Even last night I was at a work dinner and I I talked to like one or two people basically the whole time. And I like those deeper conversations, but I, I should have worked the room more based on what, you know, I'm fundraising. So <laughs> Yeah. And there's conversations though that's not possible. One of the things I always tell people is like if you if you don't if you don't want to talk to the person next to you on the plane, it's okay to not stop that conversation because you're stuck there, right, right? For however long the flight is. And it's the same thing at a dinner, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? Get up and move? Been great to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So I'm going to go down to the table, <laughs> right? Like that's hard. So that's understandable. And you're just going to have to live with the awkwardness. But in most conversations, you can just walk away. You know, you also said something about how kids of this era are much more likely mm -hmm. to text their friends than call. And I mean, how do we change that? So a lot of older people have th this wrong idea that young people don't have communication skills. Turns out that's incorrect. In fact, millennials are better listeners than boomers are. Their conversational skills among Gen Z are just as high and sophisticated as any other generation. The only thing that's different as far as we know, and it's what you've just pointed to, is that somebody who's a member of Gen Z is the most likely generation to believe that texting back and forth is the same as a conversation. And it is not, not by any measure. But here's what I would say. You know, I get questions all the time from people and the question always goes something like this. My daughter's on the phone all the time. I can't pry it away from her. You know, how do I get her to step away from her phone? And I say, always, is that what you're modeling? Are you coming to the dinner table without your phone? Are you spending time at home without your phone in your hand or in the same room? Are you leaving the house without your phone sometime? Are you showing your kids that it's not only appropriate, but actually healthy to be without your phone? And if you're not, then you cannot expect your kid to do something you're not doing. It's not going to happen. So that is the very first thing is do a personal inventory and make sure that what you're modeling for your kids is what you expect of them. You know, this happens all the time in corporations where employees will complain that they feel that they have to answer email. They're tied to email all the time and they're doing work on the weekends and at night. And the CEOs are always saying, I've told them I don't expect them to answer emails. Right. And I say, okay, how many times do you send an email to your employees after hours? Because if you send an email, they're going to expect that, A, that's expected, and also that they're expected to respond to you. So stop modeling behavior that you say you don't want. Right. Um, so how do you get your kids off the phone? And how do you get them to stop texting? You tell them they have to answer your... My son answers the phone every time. Oh, my God. He does amazing. not text me back because he knows. I'm. <laughs> he knows yeah. that I, it's, it's going to become a thing. Yeah. Like, I'm going to make it a big deal and I'm going to be embarrassing and whatever it is. He knows that's 
a priority. And as a parent, you have to choose your battles. That's one of my battles. So he answers the phone every time. And now as a 24 year old, he calls me, if not every day, every other day. That is fantastic. And you feel that's because you modeled for him this behavior and had lots of talks around it. I'm sure every parent listening is like, how do you get your kid to do that? Yeah, because we would have meals and I would put a, a, a bucket on the other side of the room. And I was like, all the phones go in there. They, so are, they do not come to the dinner table. And if the phone rings during the dinner table, nope. So great. That's fantastic. That's so great. I'm not quite there yet. My kids don't have phones, but I'm just, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for that information. So, okay. You you also wrote this incredible book. We need to talk how to have conversations that matter. How did you get interested in communication like this? What drew you to this? Is this because you were a journalist? Tell me about how you ask questions. And, you know, I interview people regularly too. And I love it when I can ask you a deep question and you open up. It's like this like magic moment. I'm sure you've had those moments too. But tell me some of the tips in terms of having conversations that matter. Okay. So let me start with the beginning and work my way through. I, I started writing the book because I, I had just gotten a job as a, as a host of a radio show. And a host is different from a reporter, right? Because if I'm a reporter, nobody hears my voice in the finished piece. Right. I can ask questions in any order I want to. I can ask really long questions. I don't have to craft the questions well. And so when I became a host, I was like, I, I need to learn how to do this. And So I started consulting all the best advice I could get on conversations because that's what an interview is, right? Right. It's a structured, formal, time-limited conversation. And I started reading the same advice all of us have gotten, you know, mirror their body language and reflect back what you've heard and maintain eye contact and nod your head. Except I worked in a conversational laboratory, right? I could try those things out. I could say, okay, now I'm going to focus for the next week on maintaining eye contact in my interviews and see if it helps. And none of it helped. In fact, most of the advice we'd been getting on conversation made things worse. And so I started realizing we've been getting really, really bad advice. And I started from scratch, right? I started like actually going back to the scientific reports and reading through the American Psychiatric Journal and sociology and all of the neuroscience even to try to figure out what do we know about good conversations. And so I had to recreate it from there. And that's when I sort of realized, wow, I'm not, I'm not actually good at this. Like I've always thought of myself as being a really great conversationalist, but it turns out I was just a great talker. And so once I realized, wow, I have to work on a pretty much every aspect of conversation, that's when, you know, the TED talk came along and, and the, the book, because I realized around me, everybody was having terrible conversations. And so that has, you know, over time morphed into even more research into the way we relate to one another, why we don't relate to one another when it, it fails, all of the things connected to human connection at its at its core. And so that's been my work. And I don't always get it right, right? I still interrupt people. I still offer my, you know, somebody will tell a story and I'll be like, oh, I, I did something similar. I'll still offer my stories as though they're the same. I, I still make the mistakes. I'm still a work in progress, especially when it comes to listening. And, you know, that just keeps me going back in into the work is figuring out how to get better at it, how to become a better listener and what are the moments when it is OK to to walk away. So, yeah, it's it it continues to fuel. 
It really is an art too. I always think about, I used to run this other talk show years ago, like 15 years ago. And I remember when I was trying to learn how to do an interview because I was writing just terrible scripts and just terrible interviews. And it was, you know, you pop around from topic to topic and nothing was cohesive. And, um, I remember looking up interview books or books about conversations like that. And I read the art of the interview and I was like, well, this didn't help me at all, actually. Yeah. And so anyway, it sounds like everyone should be reading this book if you are looking to do a great interview or just have a great conversation. You're doing so much work in diversity and inclusion. And I'm so grateful for that. We really try to do, as I was explaining to you before, at Halogen, my venture fund, we invest in, there has to be a female in the founding team. And so gender is our bucket. But we have found that because we said, hey, we're looking for women in tech, we have a much more unique diaspora of founders. And we have over 50% minority-led companies. And we look at an early stage business as like where we can make that diversity change. And we think about diversity of age, race, and gender at those early stages and try and kind of like point those things out to the teams and say, hey, it looks like you could add a female to this team. Or hey, maybe we could add someone like a person of color here. This is how we create the best culture we can. And the coolest thing is, I was saying this years ago, and now and people thought I was crazy pitching this little venture fund. And now there's so much data to draw from that diversity and inclusion actually creates better businesses. And so it's something so important to involve. So tell me about your work there and specifically Headway DEI. So, you know, it's a natural extension of the work I was doing because the where I specialize is how to have these conversations about race and especially in organizations because we're not having them, right? A conversation requires a mutual exchange of information. And so often when we're talking about race, one person may be telling you about their personal experience, but that information is not being accepted. It's usually being argued with or not believed. And they, the information that's offered in exchange is, is neither equal nor helpful. And so where I came into this was like, okay, you know, a lot of people have written books about, you know, the history, explaining things like why you don't touch somebody's hair, explaining how we got here. But my area of expertise is how to get you through the conversation. And so that's what now my book, Speaking of Race, is about. It's like walking you all the way through it. And there's a whole chapter in there on organizational conversations, right? Because we know that standard DEI training doesn't work. And we've known it for decades, actually. There's no evidence that the standard DEI training that most companies pay for and pay a lot for accomplishes anything at all except for manages liability. And that's how that that began, is a way to put a check mark and manage liability, right? And so Headway began because as a whole group of journalists, we thought the same thing. We were like, look, we have been working on this in journalism for so long, none of it's working maybe we should find out what actually works. Mm -hmm. And so Headway it offers training, but it's all, it's evidence-based, it's science-based, it's designed to move the needle and we've got the receipts, right? Right. This is how you actually create change. The thing is you have to be very honest about it in terms of your conversations because human beings don't like diversity. We don't like it. 
A, every single person is biased. Maybe you're not racially biased, but you're, you might be biased against people who are overweight. You might be biased for people who are tall. I mean, there's only been one president ever who's under six feet, right? Despite the fact that that's very rare. Almost all male CEOs are over six feet. Like, most people have a bias for, for height. So that's the first thing is accepting that you're biased. So that's not hanging over you a threat. Like, oh God, I'm afraid of this conversation because someone might find out that I'm biased. TLDR, you are. The other thing is that, like I said, we don't enjoy diversity. And so in the organizational context, we have to accept the fact that we feel more comfortable when we are around people who are like us. We feel more comfortable when people have similar experiences to us. It's like when you're talking about a movie you're really excited about and you say, oh, remember that one part? Well, blah, 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 blah. And the other person, I never saw it. I don't know what that is. And you're like, Ugh. right? So, But you're going to way more enjoy the conversation if it's someone who's seen the movie. It's the same thing with life experiences. It's much more fun when you're talking to someone who's had the same experience. So stop thinking that this is about getting people to like each other. It's not about that. It's about teaching people to work well to, with one another, even when they don't like each other, even when there are differences. So you respect those differences, you respect those people, even if you don't respect their specific opinion, and you learn how to work as a, a team. Mm -hmm. That's what head, Headway is entirely about. It's literally about teaching people how to collaborate, problem solve, teaching people how to work as a team and, and create transactivity. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is a really important topic and not enough work has been done around it. What I'm seeing in terms of what we're doing right now is we're going in for our third fund now. And so we're opening up more of these institutional investors. And what happened when I raised the first fund is they basically laughed me out of the room because they're like, why would we invest in a venture fund that only invests in women? But then now they're like, oh, we have a whole vehicle given to diversity and inclusion, gender lens focused, you know, I've heard, you know, racial justice is a vehicle at one of these institutions I was just talking to. And um, while I love that, what I've seen, and you're talking about all of the male CEOs who, you know, are over a certain height, etc. And they, those are all the, the people I'm dealing with. And uh, they, they really are just meeting with us to check a box. And there's actually not a lot of capital in those vehicles is what I've learned. And at least the conversations are happening, but I'm looking at how can we make this change at the highest levels too now, because we need capital to invest in these early stage businesses, but we need to change the diversity and inclusion up there. And um, I keep proposing, and maybe you should do a story on this or something, that we just shine a light on where all the capital's going because it's managed by all the same people. And it's like the billions and trillions of dollars in the United States and beyond are managed, it feels like, by 20 basically advisors, whether it's a, an endowment or a what have you, they all sort of outsource to these 20 advisors. And um, I don't know, there's there's more work to be done there. So I'm so happy to hear you're, you're working on this and these conversations need to be had. So I'm grateful you're having them and training people to have them. So important, such incredibly important work. Uh, you know, one question I would ask is, okay, so I'm going to give you a real situation. Okay. I'm on a board. Mm -hmm. I'm white. They're all white men. So it's like me and 10 white men. How do you in that conversation say you know, I think we need to add some diversity to this board. And 
I can try and say that. And I have said things like that and maybe that exactly. But the problem is then how can I back it up or how would you propose I have that conversation? A couple things. I would say that in most cases you have to, we have to stop making the business case for diversity. Okay. And I say that because a, that argument hasn't worked, but also it's really difficult to truly and in an honest way, track the impact of diversity, except when it comes to innovation and especially when it comes to accuracy. So let me give you an example. There was one study in which they, they gave, they, they grouped people into groups of three and they had them solve murder mysteries, right? And most of the groups were all white. You're speaking um, my language. I love murder mysteries. <laughs> so, and some of the groups had a non-white person in them. For each one of these setups, they everybody would have a shared group of information, like a sheet of paper that everybody saw that had clues on it. But they were also, each individual had a clue that nobody else had, right? So they would have had to do some kind of interaction in order to solve the mystery. The diverse groups outperformed the all-white groups' heads or tails. Not only did they reach the conclusion faster, but they were double digits more accurate. And here's the thing. When you have a group which is diverse, meaning they have different life experiences or backgrounds or whatever it may be, people anticipate that there's going to be some argument. And therefore, they become better at their jobs. They're more careful. They do better research. They, they are way more accurate in their preparation. So again, they may not be comfortable, but it's that very discomfort that makes them more accurate, faster, more efficient. And we also know that because of that, because you get different ideas and perspectives bubbling up, you're way less likely to end up with incredibly expensive scandals that put you on the front page of the New York Times. You're not going to make a Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner that becomes a laughingstock. You ha when you bring those diverse voices in the moon, they protect you. They, they spot your blind spots which means you not only have to bring them in, you have to empower them. They have to be into the kind of position where they're heard and heeded. And we have data going back at least 25 years showing this. You're more accurate, you're more innovative, you're more creative, and you're going to be more efficient in the long run. So instead of showing that it's going to increase your stock holdings, what you need to show is it makes organizations more resilient in the end. I love that. And I, I completely agree all, all around. So that's fantastic. And I hope more people have these conversations. Everyone needs to read your book. And speaking of books, it is time for our goodbye story. So you told me that your favorite childhood book is The Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. So Island of the Blue Dolphins is a 1960 children's novel by American writer Scott O'Dell, which tells the story of a 12-year-old girl named Karana, who is stranded alone for years on an island off the California coast. So why is this important to you and what does it kind of bring back to you when you read it that first time? First, I'll say that it's based on a true story of a, a woman, a, a young girl named Juana, and she was left on San Nicolas Island, I think it was, for like 18 or 20 years. Island of the Blue Dolphins is about resilience and creativity, and she finds a way to survive as a young, very, very young person. 
and she's attacked, she's injured, she finds new solutions to things. But he writes it in such this uh, such a way that's so positive in that it, it, it's never I'm going to give up. She never it's it, that's never an option for her. It's always okay. How do I get through this? She takes the time to to like appreciate the the beauty of the world around her. The island of the Budolphins is because that's what's in the ocean around her, and he describes her sitting there and watching them play and learning something from the the joy of the dolphins. I don't know. I just when I think about that book, I probably read that book as a kid twenty times. It just made me feel powerful. It made me feel as though I I too could find solutions for things that seemed impossible. So yeah, I loved that book. It was, it was, it's a, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you're making me want to go back and read it just the way you're talking about it. I'm like, I have to go read this. I I don't remember all of it. And it was like, you just got me so excited about it. Well, so Island of the Blue Dolphins, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so, so much for being here today and having these great conversations. Everyone Everyone needs to go hear Celeste's TED Talk and watch it and read her incredible book. And we will make sure we link to it and post it on in our shop and all of the fun things. So thank you so much, Celeste. It was so nice to meet you. And we'll hopefully talk to you soon. Thanks. Good luck with your car opening door, kids. <laughs> but I know I, I also know we both have to go because we have some monumental work to do. That's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yes, my kid's still alive. Thank God. We learned about car lock. If like the, you know, kid, what's it called? Child, Child lock, lock from the outside. If you, if anyone hasn't done that, it's in the door. Took a minute. Anyway, take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Please write us a review. If you liked us, tell us what you think. Follow us on Instagram at monumental.podcast at Jesse C. Draper and tell us who you want to hear from and how you think we can solve childcare. Also, please give us five stars.